0: They go through all the usual stuff. They denied, denied, denied a canine dog, came out and alerted on the car. Eventually one of the guys started cooperating.
1: When you said these guys agreed to do a controlled sale, right, I, I have a feeling you skipped over a lot of really intense negotiations there.
2: And the DEA seemed to hit houses with warrants and for the most dangerous kind of people, that can be and always is a very high risk situation. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades, that at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated, or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives, Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best Case, Worst Case listeners get 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with code Case. That's code BESTCASE.
1: Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is...
2: Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we are still social distancing, which I suspect you are happy about socially distancing from me, but we're also physically distancing. In fact, we're across the country.
1: Isn't it everybody, Francie? Isn't no. everybody? <laughs> oh, really?
2: No, Jim.
1: Okay, just thought I'd ask. Uh, and <laughs> with us today, we have a very special guest. Hi, my name is
0: James Skip Sewell, S-E-W-L-L, and I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a uh, former police officer down in New Orleans, uh, a former U.S. Marshal in New Orleans, And I spent about 27 years with the Drug Enforcement Administration as a special agent and then as a supervisor with them. I retired in 2017. And then I went to work for the district attorneys here in St. Tammany Parish as a felony major crime investigator. I am completely retired now at this point.
2: Jim, you're outnumbered. Two Southerners to one New Yorker. I love it, Skip. Thank God you're here. I'm so tired of being outnumbered by like Jim and Tim and Bobby.
1: I don't think you heard correctly. It's two Jameses (laughs) against one Francie. Let's get real.
2: Unbelievable. I knew you
1: would turn it around somehow. But James, or we'll call you Skip. Skip, you have a very interesting accent. Where is that from?
0: Well, I was born in Florida. We moved to Florida. My dad was a uh, Florida Highway Patrol officer. Mm -hmm. But the reason we moved to Florida, my grandfather played pro baseball. He played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And during the offseason, he would do the spring training, coaching in Florida. He didn't like in Pittsburgh too cold, so he ended up moving to Florida. And uh, that's where I was born.
1: All right, well, first of all, my dad was drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates. He went to their AAA farm team, but then his brother had just gotten married and he got drafted. And so my father, by enlisting, prevented his brother from having to get sent overseas in the Korean War. And he got on plane, went to Korea, and came back a few years later. And father had been killed. And there was a whole bunch of mess happening at the time. So he never went back into baseball. But that's amazing. So your dad played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, where Roberto Clemente played.
0: It was actually my grandfather played for
1: the Pirates. He was
0: a uh, National League Pitcher of the Year a couple years. He played in a couple All-Star games. Wow. Wow. Uh, I, my dad got drafted out of the college he went to florida state and coincidentally played with football with burt reynolds and played baseball also he wow. uh, yeah played with the farm leagues in cincinnati decided that that wasn't working out enlisted in the marine corps and when he got out of the marine corps he went and started working for the florida highway patrol and i guess that was my
1: initial interest in law enforcement that's pretty amazing but and what was your grandfather's name and your father's name
0: my grandfather was truett rip sewell Wow. he's uh he threw a pitch called the blooper ball, um,
1: ah,
0: and Ted Williams, Ted Williams hit it out of the park in like the '44 All-Star Game, I believe it was. Uh, the only home run ever hit off of it. Wow! And then my dad was Jim
1: Sewell. Wow, that's so. awesome. Well, that's a really amazing piece of history. And
2: well, and would well, just for the record, Jim, Skip, you you couldn't have finished where your accent came from because every good Southerner knows Florida is not the South. I'm sorry to our Florida listeners, but although those of you Floridians who live in the Redneck Riviera, my favorite spot in the world, uh, that is on the Gulf Coast of Florida, maybe some of you there in the panhandle consider yourselves Southerners and I'll adopt you as such. But the rest of Florida Skip is not Southern. So where'd you get your accent?
0: It must have been Georgia. We moved to Marietta, Georgia. (laughs) Yes. Uh, yes. I knew that was the answer you were fishing. I I knew there
1: was something rotten
0: (laughs) in Denmark. I I missed the first cue. And then we moved to uh, the New Orleans area when I was a senior in uh, high school. Okay. All
2: wonderful people come from Marietta, Georgia. I'm just going to say that uh, to start. So, Skip. Tell us about your career. I mean, you had a really interesting one. You were with the DEA for a really long time. I think it'll surprise people to know it's Drug Enforcement Administration. Lots of people think it's something else, but that's DEA. And can I just tell you right now, I used to tell people that when I was in AUSA, when I was a federal prosecutor, if you put a bunch of men walking into my office, each one from a different federal agency, Secret Service, ATF. DEA, FBI, marshals, five guys. If you walked in, put them all in a suit and didn't tell me where they belonged, I could tell you where they belong. It's like instantly recognizable. You know who's who. And I just have to say, I don't mean to insult either you or Jim. Secret Service dress is the best. And I have to tell you, Skip, there's probably a tie between you and the marshals for maybe worse dressed only because... I consider you guys to be kind of the the door-kicking cowboys, and I like that. It's a positive thing. It's not a negative. Am I wrong?
0: No, you're absolutely right. It's kind of the nature of the <laughs> piece. We're out on the street a lot. Coat and ties don't uh, fit in in the neighborhoods we go to. So, yeah, and a lot of guys, a lot of agents, that is, use that as an excuse to dress that way, even going to court or U.S. attorney's office.
1: Yeah, and yeah. but you are also dealing with a very violent, incredibly... Uh, difficult, let's put it that way, war, instead of just fighting crime. And so it's something that I believe that DEA has to be more tactical, definitely has to be more strategic than the average FBI agent or Secret Service agent, who are really basically babysitters, let's let's be honest, right?
2: Stop it, Jim. (laughs) Well, they're
1: well-dressed babysitters, but yeah, (laughs) it's an important baby that they're sitting, but whatever. No
0: doubt that we had had to be tactically sound. We have to be up to date. Coincidentally, I was head of our SRT team. I was the uh, supervisor of that special response team that dealt with most of the high risk arrest and search warrants. Tragically, right before I left, we had a shooting in New Orleans of one of our agents. But uh, the SRT team was kind of a long thing coming for, for DEA, but it's up and running now. And I think it's a good, good philosophy, given the type of people that we encounter.
2: Well, and I think, Skip, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, really strikes me in particular about all law enforcement, of course, because eventually you're all in that situation. But in particular, the marshals and the DEA seem to hit houses with warrants and that search warrants and arrest warrants for the most dangerous kind of people. And that can be and always is, it seems, a very high-risk situation. So, you guys are really putting yourselves on the line on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, and I would agree. And when I was with the marshals, we had a, a less active warrant squad at the time. We mainly went after probation and parole violators. The marshals, to some extent, reinvented themselves. And then now they developed these task force where they execute a lot of state warrants. You know, used to, we would not get involved in someone that was wanted for a homicide. Now they uh, have a A much more dangerous job, I believe, than I was there because of the type of cases they get involved in. They react to a lot of cases. They've got a good technical unit where they track phones, and they're very uh, adept at that. They're very good at that. At the time, I wasn't satisfied, so to speak, with the marshals. I wanted a little more. Coming from a police officer, I was used to the action uh, daily and nightly. So... I sat back and I watched uh, at the marshal's office, of course, who was bringing in the prisoners all the time. And I noticed DEA was bringing in an inordinate amount of prisoners, uh, followed by probably the FBI. But I decided that uh, this was when the drug war was in full swing. Uh, Pablo Escobar was public enemy number one in the late 80s and back then. And I said I'm going to jump ship, and that's what I did. I actually applied with FBI and DEA and had interviews with both, but in the um, in the end, I ended up taking DEA because DEA relatively assured me that I would come back to my hometown in New Orleans.
1: Well, that's cool. Yeah, and that is something that with the FBI, the process takes longer. It's it's a little more of a bureaucracy. And so it can be very difficult, that whole hiring process. But also they do like to send you to another area other than from where you came. And the one exception to that was New York City. They couldn't keep agents in New York City. So if you came from New York, they'd let you go to New York. And what was good about that was I got to go home when I joined the FBI. But They gave every other agent that came from outside of New York a $25,000 bonus. But the people who, because it's so expensive there, but the people there who already have been dealing with the expensive, they don't get anything. It was really weird. It was really weird. Welcome but, to the government. Yeah. But New Orleans, I did get to spend a little time there, which is why I call it New Orleans now instead of New
2: Orleans. Jim, your pronunciation is downright impressive. What do you
1: think, Skip? It's perfect. We used to call it New Orleans. I huh. mean, that's what we thought it was in our northern ignorance. Yes, I've, I admitted it, Francie. Thank you, Jim. But I spent a, a, a you know not not a huge amount of time but a fairly significant amount of time you know not only did we have some serial killers that were operating there a lot of them at the same time in that area in the baton rouge area but i also got to shoot a movie down there in my post-retirement from the fbi and i really really enjoy that town it's not just the french quarter saint charles street It's just, it's just, I don't know, it's epic. I love that street. I I would go up and down that street. I, I started running down that street, you know, because just to look at the houses every day. But the fact that you were in New Orleans, which is, you know, some people wouldn't consider it this, but you know, it's basically a border town. I mean, you know, and any border town is going to be a major drug destination.
2: Well, it is. I mean, it's definitely going to be some kind of a hub. And so what I'm hoping today, Skip, is that I'm hoping you're going to tell us some sort of a tale of crime and intrigue and mystery and beignets. Because I've (sighs) been to Café du Monde. Uh, I am not ashamed to admit that when my husband and I went there a few months ago, I was in town for a conference. I didn't know you then, Skipper. I definitely would have dropped by. Uh, I, I ate more than my share. I mean, I definitely did the tourist thing and ate way more beignets than is healthy or even seems possible looking back on it. So I hope your tale is going to involve all of those elements. So let's just sort of jump in. Do you have a case that you've been thinking about? talking about today?
0: Well, I I do have a case, and this case involves the Sinaloa Cartel.
2: Y'all, everyone knows I love true crime. One of the best things about it is that the further you dig into a story, the more layers you uncover. That's what I love the best about the puzzle game, Best Fiends. The more I play, the more fun it seems to get. Every time I reach a new level, I uncover a new layer in a new story, and I get to take part in that story. The best part of it though, is that the longer you play, the more exciting it gets. My strategy has changed now that I've been playing Best Fiends for a while. I love the fiends. I love the slugs, all the colors and the design, all the different events and the levels. My friends and family are now addicted. We all play together. I've gotten many people hooked on Best Fiends. And maybe it comes out in my competitive spirit. Okay, I admit it. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old, and it treats the game like a service for their players. It doesn't require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about having Wi Fi access or using cell data. There are always new monthly themed challenges that make my brain work in ways I almost forgot it could. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. You can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends.
1: So, Skip, where were you in your career where the particular case you're going to talk to us about occurred? It was the
0: late 1990s and early 2000s that this case happened. I was just finished up a huge investigation where we indicted the guy on multiple, multiple murders. I still had some fragments or remnants of that case I was trying to uh, finish. This guy that I was finishing the case on, his name was Richard Pena. They called him the Cuban on the street because of all his eerie similarity to uh, Al Pacino in the hit movie Scarface. Mm. I was finishing up that case and really had no plans on doing anything else anytime soon but to wrap that up when an informant called. It was a female informant. She was a stripper down in the French Quarter. Mm -hmm. And she says, I've got a guy that's bringing in drugs here that is bigger than the guy that's been in the papers, referring to Richard Payne." Of course, I didn't believe her. So I kind of brushed her off, brushed her off. Finally, we ended up going and meeting with a girl and she had a friend that was living with a Mexican guy down in the quarter. And the Mexican guy was supplying all the strip clubs, all the uh, workers in the uh, industries down there, the the bars and the restaurants and so forth. So we started talking, debriefing him, uh, debriefing her, I'm sorry. We decided that we were going to use her to make a buy from that stripper to make a buy from another stripper. So we made a couple of buys. We kind of worked ourselves up the, the ladder and we identified a guy by the name of Osmond Caston.
2: Before we talk about any more into the case, could you explain to our listeners, you say you're going to make a buy from one person to another. What does that entail? How does that work?
0: So we had the stripper informant who was willing to work on our behalf. And what we did was, we made a couple of recorded phone calls with her to the other stripper that was living with this Mexican source. She called and asked to buy some cocaine. So the girl agreed. We wired up our informant, the stripper. We gave her money and we sent her over there where she bought cocaine from her stripper friend while the Mexican guy that was a source sat in the back room. So she was essentially she was an informant and she was an active informant where she participated in the bias. We couldn't send anyone with her because the guy was paranoid about anyone he didn't know. Typical in the dope game, but being a, either another informant or being an undercover police officer. So she made a couple purchases of cocaine from this girl, and that's what got us on track watching the Mexican guy in the in the back.
2: And what kind of like what sort of amounts are you talking about? and, and how do you pay for that? I mean, how does all that work?
0: These were small amounts, like a quarter ounce, a half ounce of crack. you got to remember strippers traditionally don't buy a whole lot of cocaine. They are for personal use mainly. So to go in there and ask for a kilo of cocaine would be so out of the uh, ordinary that it would send a wreck <laughs> So yeah. we bought like a quarter ounce, a half ounce, just like an intelligence buy to try to figure out who was in the house, where they went afterwards to follow them around to see who they met with and just try to start the investigation and and see who all was involved. Again, I I was half-heartedly into it because I was finishing up this other investigation, but it it started to catch steam when we saw the Mexican guy the next day, when we're sitting on on surveillance on him, go out to New Orleans East and meet with a series of guys that we knew were well-known drug traffickers in the area.
1: So I have a question, you know, as I've unfortunately constantly seen in Hollywood when they depict drug investigations, and it goes all the way back, in my memory, to Miami Vice, where they would make a buy and they would take out a switchblade and stick it in and they'd taste it and say, oh, this is 85% pure Colombian. Can you please talk to us about how ridiculous that is and what you really do?
0: You hit the nail on the head. That's absolutely ridiculous. We, we never did that. What happens afterwards, it's usually packaged in a little baggie. We open the baggie. We have these little small drug ID kits. It's called a field test, NIC kits. And you take a little bit out with a knife or something, you put in there and you pop these series of amps. And if it's cocaine, it turns up a a bluish color. If it's heroin, it might be a a maroon color that identifies a drug. But before going to make the buy, you obviously have a good idea of what you're buying. So you have the kits, all of them are available, but you have the kit that you know most likely that what you're supposed to buy and it's going to test for that drug.
1: Right, and that's a field test, and then once that turns positive, then you put it into evidence, and where does it go?
0: We ship it to the DA lab for the New Orleans division, New Orleans area, the DA lab's in Dallas, Texas, and then they do the chemical, actual, real test of the cocaine or whatever substance it is.
2: I've seen a lot of lab reports on drugs. They're very boring. It's not nearly as exciting, Jim as watching the the hero take a knife full of cocaine and taste it.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is the right thing to do because they don't <laughs> cook co-ca- cocaine with, with any kind of rat poison or kind of stuff that, that could kill you ever, do they? But also, you're not allowed to actually do drugs, right, when you're a DEA agent, unless you get a DOJ exemption in advance, right?
0: That's correct.
1: So... If you were to actually ingest some of these drugs, especially not knowing exactly what it is, not only would you, I mean, risk getting very sick or dying, but you'd certainly lose your job, right? That's
0: absolutely true. And, you know, I've seen situations where an undercover agent has been with a couple of drug traffickers and they've asked him or her to try the drugs. And it's typically the undercover agent has some well-rehearsed story ahead of time, such as I work offshore. They test me every time I go out. Uh, I'm on probation. I can't you know, do it. I'm just doing it to make some money. It's come to the point before when we've had an agent who wouldn't try the drugs that shut down the deal and the, Dealer wouldn't sell to him for that very reason because he wouldn't try it. So he assumed that he was the police. And he was
2: right. All right. So sorry, I interrupted you to ask all sorts of questions, but that's how we do things here. At best case, worst case, because we take our listeners behind police lines and we want to know. So you've got this big murder case, this multiple murder case that you're trying to clear up. And you discover in this kind of uh, surveillance you're doing on a uh, maybe this case will be something, but probably nothing but suddenly you find that the Mexican contact is going and seeing people that you do recognize. So then what happens?
0: New Orleans is a big, small city. It's most of the traffickers, the bigger drug dealers in that area, if you've been an agent around there, are well known to the DEA or to the FBI and even to the ATF. So when this Mexican guy who was unidentified at the time started making trips around New Orleans and talking to drug dealers at auto shops, daiquiri shops in different places. We knew that we were onto something. It just coincidentally, it was about a week later after doing surveillance on him that we get a call from Jefferson Davis Sheriff's Office. They had pulled over a guy and when they pulled him over, they went through their phones and they found a couple phone numbers of guys that he was calling in New Orleans. They sent it through the local DEA office, and it came back, hit on the case I had going with a Mexican guy here. Mm -hmm. Well, when they searched the car that the Mexican guys were in in Jefferson Davis, Paris, they found a bunch of drugs in it, it 15 kilos uh, of cocaine in a hidden compartment.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So the, the, the Mexican guys that had been pulled over agreed to follow through and do a controlled delivery of the cocaine. And a controlled delivery is... When someone gets caught or pulled over on the interstate with drugs, they decide at that point they're going to cooperate with the the law enforcement agency that got them. And they're going to take that drug to its ultimate destination, and they're going to go through with delivering it to the person that is supposed to be receiving it. And when that happens, then law enforcement usually swoops in and arrests the guy that's going to receive the drugs. Well, that's exactly what happened here. The two Mexican guys agreed to deliver it to New Orleans. The only problem was the Mexican guy that we had under surveillance at that point wasn't going out to get it. He had one of the drug dealers that we were watching was going to do the dirty work for him. So they showed up with the Bronco, the two dealers that were cooperating, the Mexican guys, and they pulled into the hotel parking lot. We saw him go meet with a dealer that we knew, a known dealer by the name of Osmond Caston. Osmond got the keys and then the two dealers left the two mexicans left in a cab which we had already prearranged and we went and put them on ice we set up that night and waited on osmond to go remove the drugs out of the car eventually under night when it turned dark he went out and with another guy they went underneath it the cocaine was in the gas tank one of the problems of this organization is they had a Bronco, which didn't get good gas miles to begin with, right? <laughs> so they were having to fill up like every 105 miles. And so they had to carefully chart everywhere they went because the, the, the gas tank, the fake compartment, took up the majority of the room where the gas would have been. Hmm. <laughs> so when Kasten and his little co-conspirator went out, unload, started unloading the coke, we pulled up and arrested him.
2: Okay. Before you continue, I have a question. Okay. So you mentioned that there were 15 kilos. We have listeners from all over the world who listen to this podcast. Uh, I think probably many of them don't know how large a kilo is. So can you describe its overall physical size so we have some idea?
0: Sure. Sure. A kilo is like a flat brick object. Obviously it's 2.2 pounds. It's 2.2 pounds of coke. So in other words, that that ounce or so that we were going to buy, that we bought from the stripper informant, there's 36 ounces in a kilogram uh, of coke. So 15 kilos is 30 something, 34 pounds, whatever, 32 pounds of pure cocaine. At the time, I believe it was going for around 23, 24,000
1: uh, a kilo.
2: So that's, uh, Jim, you're the math guy. That seems like a lot of money.
1: Well, it's more than a dollar and less than 3 million, <laughs> just so you know. Thank you, Jim. Okay. Thank you, Jim. I know, because that's the kind of level of math you have in your brain. So um, <laughs> so, so true, sadly. So when you said these guys agreed to do a controlled sale, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling you skipped over a lot of really intense negotiations there. Could you please fill us in?
0: Yeah, I can. So what happened was... When they got pulled over first, they denied not having any cocaine. We went through, they go through all the usual stuff. They denied, denied, denied a canine dog, came out and alerted on the car. Eventually one of the guys started cooperating uh, under threat of going to jail. And he says, yes, I will take the dope. I will take the drugs and deliver it to this guy. I have a phone number of a guy in New Orleans. What we didn't know at the time was this Bronco was one of many that this drug organization in Mexico was using. And he didn't the guy we arrested didn't tell us the whole story Mm. that bronco was on a certain schedule it had to be there at a certain time because once it stopped and unloaded in new orleans they loaded the cash up that next one was going back to mexico and the one from mexico was now leaving to come to new orleans so they would pass each other Mm. on the way so
2: you got literal someone doing logistics i mean there's legitimately logistics going on in these drug organizations where they're tracking and timing things so that they know if someone's been intercepted.
0: That's correct. That's correct. So when we got the drugs on our end, the guy wouldn't cooperate at first, but the the Mexican guy that we already had in custody, he told us, you need to get the money and get it headed back to Mexico because they're going to be calling me. They're expecting a call from me. I'm like, well, we're not paying for this, right? I mean, we had seized the drugs, certainly couldn't pay twenty-three, twenty-four thousand dollars 24000 a kilo for 15 kilos to send back to Mexico. It just wasn't going to happen. So we had him make a couple phone calls to the Mexican source who was in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. We recorded them, of course. And at that point, we just assumed we had arrested the bad guys. The investigation was over and it was going to, you know, might be some small follow-up where we looked at the, their phones and tried to debrief him and interview him. But for the most part, that investigation was over. However, I was wrong.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, Jim, I really want to hear more about this story,
1: don't you? I do, too. I can't wait to hear the rest of this story because it's very intriguing. And I'm sure that we've only scratched the surface of how deep this is going to go. That's correct. Skip, this is an amazing story, and we can't wait to hear the rest of it. And we will when we come back next time. And until then, thank you for being here, Skip. You're welcome. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Signing off. we